0: Please turn to Second Peter Chapter one. Second Peter Chapter one. Hear the word of the Lord. This is verses one through fifteen. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us your word that you might be glorified and that we might be sanctified as we read it, as we hear it, as we apply ourselves to the study of it through the work of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you will illuminate our minds, illuminate this passage give us clarity of mind, me clarity of expression, that we might glorify you all the more, and that we might be edified as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be back. As Marty said, this is I was here last summer, and I see a number of you uh, familiar faces. It's good to be here, and it's good to have the privilege of being here with you this week and next week. since. Last summer, we acquired a new baby, um, but homegrown, so we didn't adopt her. We have a new baby, Kara, she's six weeks, and then my other daughter, Alethea, and my son, Timothy, and my wife Elizabeth. And we're pleased to be worshiping with you here this week and next week. Pastor Steve asked me to preach, and I jumped on the opportunity, and I thought it would be wise to, uh, for us to go over Second Peter chapter one. For this and next week. So hopefully after next week you will be spurred on to read 2nd Peter in its entirety to be blessed by it all the more. Peter wrote this second letter as he tells us in 2nd Peter 3. He wrote this to elect exiles in Pontus, in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is his second letter in 1st Peter, we we see that these are the addressees. These are the people who are elect and exiled and scattered about in these various areas. So taking these two facts, we can come together and, and say, yes, this is to whom he is writing. These believers who are in exile. These believers and Peter himself are under great persecution. They are being persecuted for their faith. And Peter seeks to encourage them in the first letter and in the second letter. There are a number of issues that Peter addresses in this letter, like assurance of salvation, assurance that the day of the Lord is going to come, because there are many false teachers and false prophets who are saying that the day of the Lord is never going to come. And they mock the people of God. Some of these people themselves are are actually eating the Lord's Supper with the body of believers. And so, naturally, one of the issues that Peter addresses is the proper role of prophecy and scripture, which we'll look at next week. But this week, we're going to tackle the first thing that Peter addresses, and that's a reminder. He wants to remind us to be who we are. He wants us to remind us of, first, our identity, of who we are in Christ, if we believe. And second, to supplement our faith. To put that faith into action. Peter recognizes the urgency of this message. He says in verses 12-15 that he knows he's going to be putting off his body soon. Jesus, in John chapter 21, had already prophesied to Peter that he was going to be, he's going to die. So most likely Peter is, is in Rome under the beast Nero. And he doesn't have much time left. This is basically this is the equivalent of Paul's Second Timothy. These are Peter's final words. And we see that what is very dear to him is our knowing who we are, and to be diligent to make our calling and election sure, and to be found spotless and without blemish and at peace when Jesus comes. And he says as long as he's alive, he's going to remind us of these godly qualities. So there are six aspects of our identity that Peter mentions that we're going over. The first one is we are elect and beloved. We are elect and beloved. Now 1 Peter 1 says that it's addressed to the elect exiles. But we also see a bit of this election or elected status in 2 Peter 1 when he says to make our calling and election sure. Peter assumes that if we believe we are elect, and in 2 Peter 3 he calls us his beloved. These are very dear terms. They're special terms that evoke a special and unique relationship that we have with God, with the triune God. We know that it is not the case that everyone is elect or has a special love from God because not everyone believes, not everyone submits to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and so cannot be called the elect of God or the beloved of God. God has set his special eye or has considered us the apple of his eye if we believe in Jesus Christ. Of course, we cannot say that this status, this identity of, of being elect or loved by God is something that we, in some way, earned. It is not the case that God looks down the quarters of time and sees who's going to believe and then on that basis says, okay, now that you chose me, I'm going to choose you. No. We know better than that. We know that no one seeks after God. That... No one understands God. In his unregenerate state, we are lovers of our own sin, lovers of our own darkness. We are at enmity with God. And so, we're not going to seek after the Lord. It has to be by God's irresistible grace with which he calls us that we can be believers in Jesus Christ. This is not something that we earned or merit in any way. In fact, in Second Peter one three. We see that it is his divine power that is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. This is Christ's work. This is what Christ has done. He has given us these things. We can't say that we have earned this relationship with the Lord. We were running away from him like Saul, and, and God rescued us. God turned us away from enmity with him to a a special friendship and loving relationship. And if we miss this point that we do not earn this election, this beloved state, if we miss this then we are not going to have a proper framework through which to see Peter's commands. Peter's going to give us two commands in the second section of this message and these are commands from the apostle and they must be Obeyed, But God does not give us commands and then say, on the basis of your obedience or disobedience, I will choose you. No, he rescues us. And then he gives the commands. He he chooses and then he commands. We saw this with his rescuing the Israelites from the Egyptians. He rescued them from the hands of the Egyptians and then he gave them the Torah, the law of God. And as we had a, a, uh, the reading from Deuteronomy just a little bit ago, it is not by the righteousness of the people of Israel that God is choosing them, but for God's name's sake. So that's the first thing of who we are. We are elect and we are loved by God. The second thing is found in verse 2, or verse 1 rather. We are equally righteous. He addresses this letter to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we've been chosen, if, we've been truly, uh, if we truly believe in Jesus Christ, then we have a faith that is of the same kind and same value and that has the same privileges as that faith of the apostles. Peter is saying to his, to his listeners, I'm no better than you, and you're no better than I. Peter, yes, an apostle of the Lord, but his faith is the same faith that we have because this faith comes from God himself. There is no second-class believer in Christianity. If there were, that would indicate that there is some type of works righteousness, that we earn God's love, and that God becomes more and more pleased with, with us and then loves us more or less based on our obedience or disobedience. May it never be, that's not how our Lord works. We are equally righteous because we have been given the righteousness of Christ, which is a perfect righteousness. And with this righteousness came the gift of faith. It wasn't our own faith. It was a gift from God, not something that we could muster up in ourselves. And so, Peter, Paul, the other apostles, the great heroes of the faith... Great reformers, they had the same faith that we have, faith that God has given us with which to believe. And so God doesn't love us more, doesn't love us less. In fact, He loves us as He loves the Son, which is with a perfect love. The third thing that we are, if we truly believe, is we are equipped with all things needed that pertain to to life and godliness in verse 3 again his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him we have everything we need to live holy lives there is not one thing that you are lacking it is not the case that you need to go to some secular psychologist or psychiatrist to get some advice on on how to live this life that is a struggle God doesn't justify us and rescue us from our sins and then says, Okay, I got you this far. Now you, on your own, come up with ways to live this life of holiness. The Lord has provided us with the resources. I think of a catcher who plays baseball. The, The role of the catcher, maybe a little bit of Buster Posey for the San Francisco Giants. I think of the catcher, if he wants to play catcher, he has to have a catcher's mitt. But is that all that he needs? No, he needs to have more equipment if he's going to, well, not receive some undue harm. He needs to have a face mask. He needs to have a chest protector and shin, shin guards. He needs to have all of these aspects in order to play this role well. And the Lord doesn't just give us a catcher's mitt. He gives us all the equipment. He gives us himself. He gives us Christ. We are united with Jesus Christ. He gives us his Holy Spirit that indwells us. And he has given us his word. This is a huge theme in Second Peter. He has given us his word. He has given us his prophecy. And it is that that can sanctify us. So we're not lacking in anything. We are equipped with everything that we need. The fourth thing that we are is we are also equipped with God's very great promises. His precious and very great promises, Peter tells us in verse 4. This full equipment includes his precious and great promises that he has granted to us. That he is called to us by his own glory and excellence. Through Jesus' own glory and excellence, he has earned the fulfillment of these promises. Through Jesus' life and his complete conformity to the law of God, and through his death for us, paying the penalty that we deserve, because of Jesus' person and work, he has accomplished. All of the promises that were made since the beginning, that God will be our God, that we will be his people, that he will deliver us from sin and the devil and wickedness, the world, that he will come back again, that he will be with us amid trials and tribulations and the hundreds of other promises that he makes to his His people were it not for Christ's work, these promises would be null and void. But because Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed and died for us, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning over us, he sees to it that all these promises are met. Now, interestingly, Peter does not tell us the content of these promises. He doesn't spe- specify what specifically he has in mind. But certainly, he has in mind, just in general, all the promises that are granted us in Scripture. Rather, he focuses on the results of the promises, which leads us into the fifth thing of who we are. Through these promises, these precious and very great promises, we have become partakers of the divine nature. This is the fifth thing of who we are. We are partakers of the divine nature. This is a very controversial verse. A lot of ink has been spilled on what this means. There are LDS people who, who have used this verse for over a century to support the idea that man can become a God. In fact, God was once a man. And as He was, we can become. As He is, we can become. But this is not what the, what the word means. Peter knows better than that. Peter knows that there is only one God. There's only one Lord. And all the gods of the people are false idols. So he's not going to then say, well, we can become gods as well. Like We can put on the attributes of divinity. We can be omniscient or omnipotent or everywhere. That's ridiculous. God is, or, or Peter is a faithful uh, Jew who recited the Shema, Hear Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So, bypassing all that controversy, this word, um, what he's saying here is, he's telling us that we are becoming like God in the sense of His moral attributes. We are sharing in who He is as we become holy. This is very similar to Paul in Ephesians 5.1 when he tells us to be imitators of God. Neither Paul nor Peter is saying that we can become gods, but we can become godlike in terms of those attributes that he shares with us, of of mercy, of love, and, and grace, kindness, and greater holiness. This is who we are. We have become a partaker of the divine nature in this way. And he clarifies that as well in the next verse. He says, this is our sixth thing. This is at the the middle of verse 4. So that through them, again, through these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The sixth thing of who we are is we are escapees of worldly corruption and sinful desire. It might not seem that way to you, that you have escaped the world of sinful desire and uh, corruption. But you have. In a very real sense, sin is no longer your master. The world is no longer your master. The devil is no longer your master. And as as you put off sin and you put on Christ, and you put on these virtues that he's going to talk to us about, you become, in a very real way, more and more incorruptible. God is without corruption. He is without decay or destruction. And sin leads to that. And so, as we put off, as we abandon our own sinful ways, and we put on Jesus, we are becoming more and more like God. Less like the world less like the earthly and more like the divine, more like the heavenly. Of course, all of these things, our election, our beloved status, our uh, status of being equally righteous and being equipped with everything we need, being equipped with the promises and becoming partakers of the divine nature and, and having escaped the world, the world's corruption, all of these things are Only done by Jesus' work. Again, these are things that he has granted to us. And we need to remind ourselves of of who we are. We need to think of ourselves more in these categories. Yes, I am elect. Yes, I am loved by God. I am a partaker of the divine nature. I'm sharing in who who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, who the Father is. In a very real way. I have escaped the world I am equally righteous. We need to consider ourselves as saints more than we probably do. I know it's difficult to consider yourself a saint. Uh, I have a difficult time doing that as well. Because, well, I'm not a saint. I, I know my sin. I know who I am. I know what I do. But God is telling us, because of Jesus' work, it isn't because of what you've done. Because of Jesus' work. We are a saint. We are set apart. We are made holy. Therefore, because of this foundation Peter has laid, he can now give those commands that I mentioned earlier. He exhorts them to supplement their faith, and he exhorts them to be all the more diligent to make their calling and election sure. In verse 5, after saying who we are, he says, For this very reason, okay, because of that, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge, etc. And then in verse ten, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Here are two commands that are at parallel with one another. When he says, make every effort, he understands that the life of sanctification is one with well, one that has a real struggle. Living a life of holiness is a very hard life. It requires a lot of effort. Peter is, doesn't think that we can just wake up one day and be fully sanctified in some type of passive way. He knows that it takes a lot. You know this. You know that sanctification is a lifelong battle. And this battle can only be fought with the grace of God and faith in Jesus Christ alone but it is still a battle and it must be fought day in and day out. We need to reject any idea of live and let God. We just wake up in the morning and say, okay God, I know you want me to be sanctified. I know you want me to put on virtue and knowledge and godliness and love and brotherly affection and self-control and steadfastness. I know that, so I'm just going to stay here and let you infuse me with these godly qualities. I'm just going to be here while you do that. And then Well, I'm not showing steadfastness, I'm not showing godliness, I'm not showing love. Well, what's up with that, God? We 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 need to reject that idea. Okay, we are told in Scripture to to make every effort here and to be all the more diligent to do something. And we're told elsewhere in, in Scripture to to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So instead of this live and let God Approach. We need to accept more of an Owen approach. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Do you look after opportunities to kill your sick sin? Do you strive to kill, to put to death, the residual sin that is in your life? You need to make every effort to do that. And in verse 10, when he says to be all the more diligent to make her calling an election, sure, he means it. This verb means to take great pains to do something, to be very eager and zealous to do something, and it carries with it a sense of urgency. Peter is telling us, you have to now, right now, make your calling and election sure. There is no time to waste. You're not not promised any other days. You don't know if you're going to live today, tomorrow, the next day. You don't know when your time is up. Right now, what better than today to strive after the holiness with which no one will see the Lord? And that's why at the end of his letter, he tells us to be found spotless and without blemish. He wants us to be at peace when Jesus comes. And so he tells us to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. At this point, we might be a little confused. Peter, are you saying that we need to have faith and all these things in order to be declared righteous before God? Are you saying faith plus saves? Well, no. Peter has already told us that we are elect if we believe, that we are partaking in the divine nature. If you're if you're unregenerate, you can't have these things said of you. You've already said, these are all, all these things come from God himself. Not that you deserved any of it. And this gift with which you believe is the gift from God. So this is who you are, and you should have faith. But he also knows that a faith that doesn't work isn't a real faith. He would agree wholeheartedly with James, that if your faith does not have works, it's a dead faith, it isn't a real faith. A real faith is supplemented with virtue and knowledge and self-control, because it has the Spirit working. We have the Spirit working in and through us, and if God has saved us, if he has rescued us from our own sin, from the world, he's going to work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. He is going to sanctify us. This is Jesus' own prayer in John 17, that the Father would sanctify us through the truth. Because the word is truth. So, Peter is not recommending any type of works righteousness here, but he does recognize that a real faith produces work. So, here he urges us to supplement our faith. Are we seeking diligently opportunities to, be, to have self-control? When we are sitting before the computer and are tempted to look at some type of pornographic image or some inappropriate image or watch some video on, online or on TV, do we look for opportunities to demonstrate self-control to re, to reject that? Do we look for opportunities to be steadfast in our holiness, Do we seek after opportunities to obey our parents? Do we look after or look for opportunities to show each other love and affection? Are we diligently seeking after godly qualities? Or do we say, well, why do I need to supplement my faith? Why do I need to make my calling and election sure? If I'm elect, why the effort? This is often a question that is posed of of us, of those who believe in the Reformed faith, those who believe in the doctrines of grace. Why do you evangelize if you are predestined or if you believe in predestination? Why do you look after holiness? Why do you do those things? This is dangerous thinking, and it's grounded on a misunderstanding of, of the fact that God works through means to accomplish his holy purposes, and that he holds man responsible For the actions that he that he commits. Well, Peter gives us four reasons or motives for obeying these two commands, which are again the command to supplement our faith and to make our calling and election sure. The first three are are negative and the last one is positive. Here are the motives, here are the reasons for obeying these commands. And they are commands. These come from the apostle, these aren't optional. You can't say, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do this. Maybe I won't. These come from God himself. So the first reason or motive is lest we be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. This is found in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If We have a knowledge of Jesus Christ, not just an intellectual knowledge, but that knowledge that involves an intimate relationship with him and his word. If we have that, then we will not be unfruitful. We will not be ineffective. We will see these godly qualities in our lives. In fact, if we see them truly, not just externally, but if we see them coming from the inside with faith, then we can be assured that we are not being ineffective and unfruitful in knowing our Jesus. Jesus tells us that apart from him, we can do nothing. We can bear no fruit apart from Jesus. And if we are bearing fruit, this reminds us of our knowledge of Jesus Christ, of what he's done for us, of who he is, and what he expects of us. This gives us assurance that we are making our calling and election sure if we see these godly qualities in us. It shows that we have an effective and a fruitful knowledge of our Savior. Verse 9 is very similar to verse 8, the second reason or motive for obeying these commands is lest we be nearsighted and forgetful of being cleansed by our former sins. In verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. The reading in Ephesians 4 talks about us being cleansed from our former sins and not walking like the Gentiles that we used to walk. We used to walk in darkness so proudly, loving our sin, hating God. And Peter's saying, have you, have you forgotten what Jesus has saved you from? I don't want you to be nearsighted or forgetful of the grace that he has given you, and that he gives you day in and day out, moment after moment. So don't go back to that former lifestyle, those wicked sins. Don't go back to that former way of living. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember the beauty of his grace. Be daily reminded of who you are and what Jesus has done for you in his life and on the cross. And in his resurrection. The third reason. For obeying these two commands. Is found in verse 10. Lest we fall and stumble. I wonder if Peter. Has in mind his thrice denial. Of Jesus those. Many years before. How he denied Jesus. If God has elected you your election is sure. It's, it's not going to, you can't be unelected. If God has, has shown a saving love on you, he is not going to unlove you or defriend you on Facebook or something. He's not going to do that. He will love you to the end. In this life, we, we cannot know if we are unelect. can never know if you're unelected. But you can't know if you are, if you are elect. And Peter tells us that we're we're commanded to know. And sometimes our assurance varies, it varies with our own lives as we see these godly qualities in us and increasing or not. And Peter is telling us, I don't want you to fall away, I don't want you to stumble. He is well aware of all those people who profess faith but who don't possess it. Scripture is riddled with warnings. Take heed, lest you fall also. Peter wants us to, to know that we are elect. He wants us to know that we are loved by God with an everlasting love. And that's why he, he says, look for these qualities in your life. And as you examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith, as you see holiness day in and day out, little by little, incremental steps of increase in godliness, be assured God is doing a a work in you, and he's going to see to it to the end. Of course, again, the doing of these things is not what causes us to be elect. Our obedience has nothing whatsoever to do with becoming elect or loved by God or or accepted. But the doing of these things is evidence of our election. The doing of these things shows us that we have been changed. Our heart has a faith with which to believe and with which to supplement, these, um, supplement with these godly qualities. The fourth thing, the positive reason for obeying these two commands is found in verse 11. So that we will be granted entrance into the eternal kingdom. Verse 11, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, heeding Peter's command is going to have this end result. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to run the race well and finish the race and get that prize that has been granted us undeservedly. If you have assurance, you know that God is going to provide you with entrance into the eternal kingdom. You're going to live with Jesus Christ forever. And the new heavens and the new earth. And that's something that Peter talks about later. About Jesus is going to come back. And that's where you will be if you believe. And you can... You can see if you really believe by seeing if these qualities are in you and are increasing. So I conclude, and as I do, like Peter, I exhort you to be reminded of these things. I know that, that you know them and that you are establishing the truth, just like Peter's audience had. I'm not telling you anything you didn't already know. I'm sure this wasn't new for you, but it's good, and it's right to be reminded of who we are. In Jesus Christ. To summarize, you are elect and loved by God. You are equally righteous. You have a faith that is of the same standing as that of the apostles. You are equipped with God's very precious, great promises. You are equipped with everything that you need to live holy lives. You've become a partaker of the divine nature. And you have escaped worldly corruption and sinful desire. If you truly believe this is who you are. Therefore, I urge you to put on these qualities. I urge you to supplement your faith with with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. Put these on. I don't want you to be ineffective or unfruitful in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to be nearsighted or blind, having forgotten what Christ has saved you from and what he has saved you to. I want you to have all the assurance in the world of who you are. So, as you practice these qualities, as they are increasing in you, be assured that you are making your calling and election sure and that you will, upon death, see our Lord and Savior, who is all-gracious and all-glorious. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for for this text of scripture. Thank you for telling us who we are. Lord, we didn't deserve any of this. We know that. But you are so gracious, so kind, so loving and long-suffering and merciful that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we couldn't live because of our own sin and didn't want to live because of our own sin. You sent him to live that life and to die that death that we so deserved, to save us from your wrath, from an, an eternal life in, in hell. You are so good to us, Lord. We thank you that you haven't just justified us, but you've also sanctified us, and you are doing so now. So, Lord, we lean upon your Holy Spirit through your word to sanctify us more and more. And as we do, Lord, give us the assurance that you commanded us to have, to be assured of our salvation and our election. All for your glory, Lord, and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.